life come through your word. Let life come through your word. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this living and active. Let, let, let life come into our souls today as we hear your word. Let faith come, Lord. We thank you that faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Let faith come. Let faith come. Let, I pray, God, for teachable hearts. I pray, Lord, help me in speaking what you've put on my heart here. Lord, I pray, help the guys in receiving what you're saying. Let, give them ears to hear what you are saying through this Holy Spirit. And let us be built up and changed as a result. In the name of Jesus. Amen. The church should be the most encouraging place in the world. Do you believe that? See, the church is God's house. It's the household of God. And the Bible describes God as the God of all encouragement. (laughs) You reading your Bibles? Every week you have the same dilemmas of silence. The Bible says specifically that God is the God of all encouragement. Now, if the master of the home creates the temperature and creates the atmosphere in the home, then the church should be a place that is alive with encouragement. Yeah? Full of it. What does encouragement mean? It's more than patting someone on the back. It's more than just saying hi and smiling, although that can be encouraging. Encouragement means to fortify. It means it's where we get our word courage from. I say certain things to you and act in a certain way that causes you to be fortified and strengthened. You feel different as a result of coming across my path if I'm an encourager. Isn't that our testimony in terms of how we've met with the Lord? He's encouraged us. He's brought strength to us. I don't know about you. Before I became a Christian, I was a bruised reed. I was a bruised, what the Bible describes as a bruised reed. Now, you wouldn't have known it by my appearance. I had a very, um, I had a lot of front, but I was a bruised reed, no doubt about it. One full sting and it would snap. But that's not the case anymore. I don't pretend that I'm Mr. Superman, but it's not the case. He's fortified me. There's an internal strength that has been brought because he's the God of all encouragement. That's what he does. That's what God does to weaklings and it's what we are called to do to one another. To make each other strong, to fortify one another with our words especially. Words are in a class of their own. Actions are huge obviously, but words have got a creative power about them. And God calls us to be an environment of encouragement and strength. Now we can miss opportunities to encourage one another because we can assume everyone else is encouraged and it's just me that's feeling low. You ever been there? It's just me that's feeling a bit low. They're obviously everyone else is fine, yeah? Because everyone else is smiling, but so are you. There's a little trick, there's a little clue there, you see. Just because someone's smiling, they may not be on top of the world. But you can assume, well, everyone else is fine, look at them. And they are every week, so it's only me that feels low. And so you can kind of miss that. But if everyone takes that attitude on board, it can be a bit problematic. (laughs) Because everyone's thinking everyone else is fine, so they don't need encouraging. It's just me that needs encouraging. No one encourages. What you find is over time, people can get discouraged. It can be easier and less embarrassing. To not say, I love you, or to not say, you're doing really well, or to not say, the way you did that was fantastic. It can be easier to just not say it, you know? It can be less embarrassing to just keep quiet. But the problem is this, is that my silence says a thousand things, doesn't it? You ever had that? I've been in situations where I've been preaching before, and someone's facial expression, I thought, oh my goodness, I am ruining their life as I'm preaching. <laughs> Have you been, if you've ever done any, anything like that, you think this person not only hates what I'm preaching, they hate me. Their face is contorted. You think this is, I'm not going to look at them anymore when I preach, I'm going to turn my head. And then they come up to you at the end of the sermon and they say, that was amazing. <laughs> you think, what? 
That was just, and obviously they were just thinking hard when they were hearing it, and their eyebrows were doing this and their face. Was, but they were, <laughs> you think if you hadn't said that, my assumption would be that man, you know. See, the silence could have said a thousand things. And I think we need to be aware that our silence can... Lots of people hear lots of things through our silence. Silence isn't silent. Yeah? It's actually very, very loud. Now, I think it's a good job that God has not remained silent, but he's spoken in many ways. He's spoken through creation, he's spoken through the prophets, and he's spoken finally through his son, Jesus Christ, God's last word. And what a word of encouragement Jesus is, yeah? Now, John in his letter, we're looking at one John. John has left nothing to chance regarding encouragement. We've looked over the last few weeks how he's warned them about double standards, saying one thing and living another. Having all the right words and all the right jargon, hallelujah, praise the Lord, but living bad, living in the dark. Life not matching up what you say. We've looked at the danger of heresy, of creating your own Jesus, one that you're comfortable with, one that you just think, well, that fits with me, so we'll take that bit out and I'll have this bit because we've looked at the dangers of that in 1 John. And I guess the, the readers at this point could be thinking, goodness me, this guy's not pulling any punches. This guy's speaking harsh words. And could be feeling a bit like, maybe I'm, a, maybe I'm not a real believer. Maybe I'm a hypocrite after all. And so he comes in with this huge encouragement here. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. 1 John 2, verses 12 to 14. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. John repeats himself, but basically he's reminding them of three things. Number one, he reminds them their sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Number two, he reminds them that they know both the Father and the Son. And number three, he reminds them that they are strong, that they have God's word abiding in them, and that they have overcome the evil one. I don't think we can meditate on these three things enough. Because I think a lot of the problems we face, a lot of the issues we encounter, you can trace back to not being confident on one of these three things. If you're not confident your sins are forgiven, I tell you, it can really mess things up. If you've got a tender conscience and you're not strong in the fact you've been forgiven, you can live under a cloud for days, weeks, months and even years as a believer. If you're not confident that you really know God, that you're really in a relationship with him. It can, it can really knock you. Am I imagining this? Am I just making this whole thing up? If there's no sense of fortification in that, it can be trouble. And if you're not clear you've overcome the evil one, then man, you can live in fear. The devil's coming after me, da, da, da. And constantly be focusing on this whole thing and feeling like you're under the cosh. I'm under attack again. Constant defeatist thing. And so John says, I want to encourage you. And today, I want to encourage you. Okay, I want, to I want to encourage you, number one, that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. If you are in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. What a glorious truth, oh happy day. We sing that almost every week and I love it. I'm not bored of it yet. 
I mean, think about it. To be able to stand before the living one, whose eyes are a blazing fire, the one who judges whole nations with the sword that comes from his mouth, to be able to stand before him who commanders and captains and great ones of the earth are going to run from and going to ask the mountains to fall on them rather than face him, to be able to stand before him and know that I am in the clear. What a glory. What a truth. Yeah, that I can stand before him, look him in the eye, and because I'm hidden in Christ, because I'm in him, because his righteousness has been given to me as a gift, I can look him in those blazing eyes and know that everything's all right. How good is that? That's Christian truth. You need to live in that confidence. That's the confidence God wants us to have. If you're confident in that, I tell you, it will deal in a wonderful way with fear of man, fear of people. How can you fear a mortal man whose breath of life is in his nostrils when you are able to stand before the living one? Huh? It doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. We are forgiven by him, we're forgiven before him, and we're forgiven for his name's sake. Do you know what that means? That means it was primarily for his sake that he's forgiven us. Do you know that? Because our sin caused him more problems than it caused us. And so for his own name's sake, he's forgiven us. That he might be glorified in our lives again. He's done it for him, primarily. He is rejoicing in the fact that we are forgiven more than we are rejoicing in the fact that we are forgiven. He loves the fact we are forgiven. It has released him to draw near to us and love us. How good is this? How good is this? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Bible says we've been reconciled in his body and by his death in order that he might present us holy and blameless and above reproach before the living God. Jesus is presenting us before the living God. Yeah. It's like if you, fellas, you get yourself a, a new girlfriend and you're thinking, I can't wait to show my dad this girl. He's going to go, son, you've done well there. She's a winner. The Bible story is the great romance, isn't it? The father wanted to prepare a, a bride for his son. So the son, the idea is the son purifies the bride, brings the bride before the father and the father says, wow, you've done well there. Yeah? It's glorious. We're forgiven for his name's sake. Hallelujah. But if that wasn't enough, we're not just pardoned and then sent on our way. We are brought into relationship with him. Hidden in him. Adopted. You're adopted. Befriended by God. Betrothed to the Son of God. Purchased. You become his. You're no longer your own. You've been, you've been bought with a price. You're not yours anymore. You're his. You're able to say, I am yours and you are mine. Wow, what a sublime thing. You can stand in the presence of the living God and say, I am yours, but not only that, and you are mine. It's lover's talk. It's lover's talk. Why is this thing he's brought us into? It's too much to get hold of. There's relationship, not casual, covenant. So different. People love casual relationships these days, don't they? Yeah? Keep it casual. No, I don't want any vows or oaths because, you know, what if it all goes wrong? Let's just keep it loose. If it doesn't work out, we can just... God says, no, covenant. I vow, I give myself to you forever. Give yourself to me. Because the evil one will come with all of his guile, his snares, his traps, his strategies. He's got a strategy. Okay, he's not just random. He's got a strategy. God's got a will for your life, so is the devil. He'll come with his accusations, his favourite weapon. Accuse, 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 accuse. Don't you know it in your heart sometimes? And you know it, you go to pray and suddenly your mind is filled with what a failure you are. Accusations, intimidations. 
This is the strategies that he uses. Those who are strong in the gospel. Those who know whom it is they have believed. Those who are able to stand and then when they've done all, still stand. Are those who are clear on the fact they have been forgiven by the blood of Christ for his name's sake and they are now God's. You've got to be strong in it, guys. You've got to be strong in it. You've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to go from strength to strength in the gospel. Okay, you mustn't think, yeah, I've done that. Okay, done the gospel bit, what's next? No, you never graduate from the gospel. You get stronger and stronger into it. And it becomes increasingly, increasingly part of who you are. And you're able to say, no, I'm not going to be intimidated by that. I'm not going to fall for that one again because I know him whom I've believed. I know this isn't his voice because of what he says in his word. It's contradictory. You see, that's how you, there's an active thing there that we need to come into. Those who refuse to be moved by fear, who won't allow themselves to be blown around by every wind of doctrine. And there's a lot of that stuff out there, fads and latest things that come. You say, I'm not going to be blown around by that. I know him whom I've believed. Because you become strong and you're able to join the holy ranks of Christ's glorious army. It's a beautiful thing. You're able to line up with the other saints in splendid array and march forward at his command and bring that wonderful life-changing love into this broken-hearted city, yeah? We need to move as an army. We need to move together. We need to be all on the same page in the gospel and in God. It's the year of his favour. You might say, how can all this be? How can all of this be? Christ has won. It's not our victory. It's his victory. He's a past and historical fact. I want to read to you a wonderful paragraph or two from this latest article in the New Frontiers magazine by Andrew Wilson. Andrew Wilson wrote the book Incomparable, which again I've recommended to you. Listen to this. Empires come and go. Think about the contenders. The Assyrians beat all their rivals in the 8th century BC, but then lost to the Babylonians in the 7th, who lost to the Persians in the 6th, who got wiped out by the Greeks in the 4th, who crumbled in on themselves in the 3rd, and so on. The Romans crushed all before them for four centuries, but they eventually lost too. Just like the Vikings, the Mongols, the Spanish, the British, and everybody since. IBM were dominant for a generation, but then lost to Microsoft, who now look like they might well lose to Apple. England defeated all comers in the 2003 Rugby World Cup, and then lost pretty much to everyone. True victory, conquering rivals completely and lastingly, is unheard of, with one exception. In AD 30, a three-day campaign was waged by God against all of his most powerful enemies, sometimes referred to as rulers, authorities, principalities and powers. The main confrontation took place on a rubbish dump outside Jerusalem, where God, in his son Jesus, met Satan, sin and death head on. A mocking enemy who since the Garden of Eden had been used to humans capitulating to his taunts was met by a defiant, go ahead, make my day from the Son of God. And within six hours, the one-sided battle was over. The victory was triumphantly announced with the words, it is finished. On the third day, the victory parade began as the risen champion came out of the tomb to the amazement of earth and the applause of heaven. As Paul describes it in Colossians 2.15, God obliterated his enemies in Jesus, took away their armour and made a public spectacle of them by parading their corpses through the streets hallelujah <laughs> what a gospel he got those words from me I um he rang me up and asked me for a few words I'm glad he used them not really Christ has won we're not to be confident in our own victory we're confident in his victory yeah because he's done it and spiritual warfare is about standing on what Christ has done they are defeated 
Satan and his demons are, it's not just hype or rhetoric, or this will sound exciting, it really is the truth. The Bible is very, very clear. As the biblical scholar Michael Eaton says, when we know we have already won the entire war, we shall defeat with ease any last little enemies that come our way. The joy of the Lord will be our strength, rather than the misery of doubt being our weakness. So in order to overcome the evil one, we must be rooted in Christ's victory. We must be immovable in it. But then there are other things to learn in this matter. And John gives his readers one straight away in verses 15 to 17, which is what we're going to focus on for the final part of the message. Verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... And the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I wonder how many of us in this room would prefer the idea of being a child rather than being an adult. This is a quick survey. Who here, given the choice, would say, I would go for being a child again? It's not right or wrong, it's just different people are wired different ways. Let's see your hands up nice and high. Who would go for the child thing? Okay, who would go for adult? It's about a 50, 50, it's a close call. It's interesting. That's very, very interesting. Myself and Davina occasionally have this conversation where she looks at buggies and various things and says, I just want to be in there. (laughs) (laughs) And I say, I couldn't think of anything worse. I literally couldn't. The thought of being a child for me is the worst thing in the world, the worst idea in the world. I love being an adult. I suppose we're all different. There's no right or wrong. I guess we're all different. But one of the realities about being an adult is that we have to wake up to personal responsibility in a way that we don't as children. Yeah? That's just the truth. Um, Most of us tend to have a bit of a love-hate relationship with responsibility. Does that sound familiar? Yeah? You know it's a good thing, but I'm not sure that I want it. The Bible is clear that to be given responsibility is an honor, and God takes it very seriously. Here we are told not to love the world. Now Jesus says, you will have much trouble in the world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So he's overcome the world in the final and ultimate sense. But until his return, the world, which is the term the Bible uses to describe, you know, what is the world? Is he talking about the planet? No. He's talking about the organized system of humanity, which really is against him, saying, we'll do it our own way. Thank you very much. We don't really need God. We'll make it happen together. That's what the world is, biblically. Is very much alive until Christ returns. John is clear in chapter 5, verse 19 of this same letter that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. And then he says to believers, don't love it. Do not love the world. Now that is something that you and I have to take responsibility for. And he highlights two worldly desires and one worldly attitude. Here they are. The word used, lust or desire, is a word in the original language that denotes strong desire. It can be used for good and it can be used for bad. So these are strong desires of the flesh. Now what does the Bible mean when it talks about the flesh? Is it talking about our physical body? Not necessarily. It's talking about that part of us as people that just want to do our own thing. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, some of you do. I thought, man, the hall's emptied out. You know that part of you just just thinks, I just want to do it my way. You know that part of you? I I, I, I can't be bothered to wait on God. I just want to do my own thing. Yeah? Let's just make it happen. I want that to happen. That's my dream. I'm going to do it. Yeah? 
Who cares who gets in the way or what I have to do to get there? That's what I'm going for. I want to just, it's my life. There's songs about it. There's, whole, there's a whole, that's what the flesh is. It's that part that says, I don't need God. So we have the desires of the flesh that are described as being of the world. Then there are the strong desires of the eyes. Those things that just look so appealing. And if we let them, they can blind us to reality and cause us to do things that ruin our lives just by one glimpse. It's dangerous. I sometimes think, God, you've made, you've made us very dangerous. Do you know what I mean? Do you ever think, I think, God, this, the way you've made us, you, you could have just made people with just kind of heads but no features, nothing to see, <laughs> just kind of walking around. And, you know, but there's something obviously in the heart of God. That, oh, thank God I'm not God. <laughs> there's something in the heart of God where he, he, he wants to ravish us with his beauty and he's willing, or obviously he's sovereign, but there's almost the element where it feels like he's run the risk of making us like this because there are things which are so appealing and that he has said, no, don't go there. Yeah? And it's, a ch- it's, a, it's real. This stuff is real. I want you to feel this. Real. This isn't just religious kind of theory. This is real. You feel this daily because I feel this daily and we're all the same. And then the thirdly, there's this attitude, this boastful pride of life or pride in possessions, this sense of self-sufficiency. Who needs God? I'm doing all right. Thank you very much. These are the things John says, do not love. Do not give room to them. Don't treat them kindly. Don't act generously towards them. Do not agape them. We've been looking at this word, Agape, haven't we, where we just act benevolently to people and there's this sense of indiscriminate kindness and love. John says, don't do that towards these things, whatever you do. You must adopt an entirely different attitude. Do not love the world. In fact, also we're informed the only fitting response to these things for a follower of Christ is crucifixion. That they are crucified to us and we are crucified to them. That they be taken the attitude where it says, I have died to that and you have died to me. That is the kind of balance the Holy Spirit promotes in our attitude. Without that, we will get seduced. You'll get drawn in. This stuff is real. Sound extreme? Listen to A.W. Tozer. He says this, Our attachment to the person of Christ must exclude all that is contrary to Christ. These are the days when we are trying to be 100% positive, but the scripture says of Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That was said of the very holy Christ himself, who is higher than the highest heavens and separate from sinners. If he had to hate in order to love, so do you and I. To be 100% positive would be as fatal as to inhale steadily all of your life without exhaling. You can't do that. The human body requires that you inhale to get oxygen and exhale to get rid of the poison. And so the church of Christ has to inhale and exhale. When the church inhales the Holy Ghost, she must exhale everything that is contrary to him. I don't believe any man is able to love until he's able to hate. I don't think any man can love God unless he hates the devil. I don't think he can love righteousness unless he hates sin. For the scripture leaves us with the belief that in order to accept, there are some things you must reject. In order to affirm, there are things you have to deny. In order to say yes, you have to be able to say no. Gosh, strong, isn't it? There's something about the way that God has designed the human heart that means we are not able to love conflicting things. Jesus understood this when he said, no man can serve two masters. And here John, in his affectionate letter to younger disciples, with his aim to teach them how to love one another with God's love, with agape love, unconditional, indiscriminate love, how to lay down their lives for each other, makes it clear you are not to love certain things. 
And if he hadn't taught that, his teaching on love would be incomplete. Notice how direct he is. Now, this is because the biggest threat to love is not hate. The biggest threat to love is to love something contrary. The biggest threat to loving God and loving your neighbor is to fall in love with something contrary to that. In a way that then drains your heart of love for the thing that is good. The world will do that. We are to be in the world. We're a missionary church. I'm preaching it at missionary training on Thursday evenings. Be there. I'm preaching it. Okay, we're putting it in. We are making it our priority to be in the world. But with just as much passion, I will look you in the eyes and say, we are not of the world. Okay? And some church may emphasize when we're in it, and some may emphasize we're not of it. I tell you, let's emphasize the both. We are in it. Okay? We are to be in it because we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. We must be in there. But goodness me, we're not of it. Our flavor is entirely different. Yeah? It's a totally different thing. You must guard with all your might against being taken in by any of those things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Take responsibility for yourself. I want to ask you to do that. For what you look at. For what you buy into. For what you allow to captivate you. If you don't take responsibility, who will? You say, God will. Well, he's told you to. (laughs) So he won't. You might say, well, I've got an accountability partner. Great. But it's not their responsibility. You're your responsibility. Yeah? You can't fall into sin and say, well, they didn't didn't ask the right question. (laughs) They didn't ask if I'd looked specifically at that. They asked if I looked at that. I said, no. But if they'd asked me that, I would have said, no. Take responsibility for yourself. I want to say to you with all honesty, this does not get easier as you get older. I wish it did. I wish it did. I thought it would. <laughs> it doesn't. My experience is it gets increasingly harder. Sorry. As one gets older, now I know I'm not old, but compared to some of you, I know some of you think I'm ancient. I've had some telltale conversations where things have slipped out. I won't highlight any of you, but you know who you are. As one gets older, there is something in the physical chemical side that just wants to take things a bit easier. It's just a natural thing. You just want to take things a bit easier. Beware. Satan is strategic and he's willing to wait. He's willing to wait. He'll wait 10 years. No big deal. He waits in hiding. Don't love the world. Don't love the world. The only way to do this, I think, is to make sure that your heart is so passionately full of love for God and others, there's just no room left in it for love for anything contrary. It's so squeezed and crammed full of love and passion for God. It's so full of the truth, the liberating truth. You're just so full of God, yeah, that you think there's just no room left. Nothing can get in. It's like, no, sorry, you know, name's not there, I'm not coming in. There's just no room. Yeah, it's full up, capacity. That's, for me, that seems to me to be the safest way to guard against this. Like the psalmist, we must say, God, create in me a united heart for your glory, yeah? Not a divided heart. A bit of this and a bit of that. No, a united heart. This is what I'm going for. I'm going for Jesus. We must guard our hearts, Proverbs 4 says, for from it flows the springs of life. The best way to do this, and this is what the young men have been doing in this letter, is to make sure the word of God is abiding in us. We must meditate day and night on the truth of who our wonderful Savior is. We must familiarize ourselves with the truth of Scripture. 
with all that he is, with all that he's done, with all that he promises. That way the Bible says we will be like, we will be like um, trees planted by streams of living water, yeah? Whose leaf never withers. And then whatever we do, we'll prosper. We must be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. We must keep ourselves in the love of God. It says that in Jude. Keep yourself in the love of God. You think, what does that mean? It means I keep bringing myself under the waterfall of his affection and of his love for me. I keep reminding myself. I keep bringing my being under that truth and keeping myself there. Because I have a tendency, if I don't, to just kind of find myself wondering, no, I bring myself back in. And I just go, and I bring myself under the shower of your love, under the shower of God. So I must keep ourselves there. We must remind ourselves of his goodness towards us, his faithfulness, his unchanging kindness, his abundant generosity, his great acts of the past and his great promises for the future. This is spiritual warfare. This is massive spiritual warfare. We must never forget he sings songs of love over us. He watches over us. He keeps every one of your tears in his bottle. His compassion for you is beyond anything you've ever, ever imagined. Now you must say, Steph, this sounds like hard work to get your mind onto all that stuff. But I would reply that you have to fix your mind on something. It can't be empty. I go on believing that regardless of some of your expressions when I preach. It can't be empty. There must be something going on. You didn't get there. There must be some of your expressions. There there's, there's always something going on. It's never empty. And so surely the best thing is to establish habits in there that are life-giving, yeah? Rather than destructive. Where you say, no, I'm going to meditate on the truth of God's word. It's a good thing. I mean, what better thing could you think of than the creator who loves you? Do you know what I mean? Who's given himself for you. I tell you, this is a discipline, but it's worth it. So to conclude, we must take up the full armor of God so that we may stand. Amen? That's what we should do. Lift our shield of faith because the Bible says with our shield of faith, we are able to extinguish every flaming arrow of the evil one. Every single one. Not one of his, of his arrows can stand up to the shield of faith. Not one. But we've got to lift it. Because if it's in the rack... We're gonna, you're going to get hit. He's got no right to hit you because Christ has won. Yeah? You see, he's got no right to hit you. But if you don't hold up your shield, then you, you, you've almost, you almost let, let the thing that shouldn't have happened happen. Keep your shield up. John says, then John can say to us, we are strong. The word of God abides in us. We've overcome the evil one. Let me finish as I began. The church is to be a place of encouragement, strong encouragement, where we stand shoulder to shoulder where our hearts are joined together, where we're convinced in ourselves, but also affirming in one another, we're forgiven. Yeah? We're forgiven for his namesake, that we're in relationship with God himself, that we can win. When you get together with each other and you're saying, man, I'm going through a hard time, say, you can win. Say, you can do it. Say words of truth to each other. Let's be in an environment of encouragement and strength. As we are around one another's homes or meet in pubs or go to the cinema or hook up for lunch or meet to pray and encourage each other, let me urge you, do one another good with your speech. Do one another good with your attitudes. Do one another good with your way of life, with your example. Let's nourish each other, yeah? I want to ask you to do that. Take responsibility in your speech to build one another up, to say the right things. You know what I mean? Not, not, not just saying pretend things, but you know, to speak the truth to each other. The vast majority of New Testament letters are written to congregations. The New Testament knows nothing of a Christian life which is not rooted in church life. The New Testament knows nothing of going to church. I go to that church. You know that? That is, that is foreign language to the New Testament. I go there. New Testament language is I'm part of this church. This is, this is where I am. It's a very different dynamic. Yeah. One is a place you go to once or twice a week. Another is a, it's a family I'm part of. That is New Testament. And so I want to encourage us to be an encouraging community, to fill one another's minds and hearts with the truth of God, to have loads of fun, 
Yeah. To live life to the full, but be strong in the joy of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Should we pray? Then we're going to worship. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for forgiveness for your namesake. We thank you for friendship with God. And we thank you, Lord, that we have overcome the evil one. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord. We lift up our shield of faith. We lift up our shield of faith. As I was preparing, I just felt for some of you, the poison arrows of the evil one have got in. And today's your day to just break the arrow, pull it out, ask the Holy Spirit to bring healing and lift up your shield again. We can pray for people later for that. But Lord, we just thank you that because of your victory, we have every right to live victoriously. It's you, Lord. You have done it and we are in the wake of your victory. We're hidden in you. We thank you. We are one spirit with you. This intimate thing you've brought us into, Lord. And now we pray as your spirit lives in us, stir worship and praise and thanksgiving and delight and the prophetic in our hearts today. Lord, we pray that the spiritual gifts flow in this next time together. We pray, Lord, we thank you that prophecy is given for encouragement. So let it come, Lord. Let it flow. Let our hearts be filled with truth, with faith, with life, with joy. Draw us in. Draw us right into an intimate encounter with you now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Shall we stand?